Today's scripture is Psalm 40, 1 through 3, and then 9 through 10. I put all my hope in the Lord. He leaned down to me. He listened to my cry for help. He lifted me out of the pit of death, out of the mud and filth, and set my feet on solid rock. He steadied my legs. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise for our God. Many people will learn of this and be amazed. They will trust the Lord. I've preached to you I've preached you to the whole congregation. I've kept back nothing, God. You know that. I didn't keep the news of your ways a secret, didn't keep it to myself. I told it all, how dependable you are, how thorough. I didn't hold back pieces of love and truth for myself alone. I told it all. Let the congregation know the story. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Before I jump into the sermon, let me pray for us. God, thank you for today. Thank you for every single person here, and thank you for those even who couldn't make it this morning. Uh, We pray your blessing. We pray your presence. Um, We ask, Lord, that you would tune us into you, that you would make us aware of your presence here in our lives, in the lives of those around us and in our world. You are at work. You are always at work. Um, Too often we just turn, turn off and we stop paying attention. And so help us to pay attention this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, so this is the, the final week of the whole, st- the whole story series. Uh, over the last six weeks, we've talked about testimonies of faith, uh, of hope, community, origin. And last week, we talked about failure, uh, namely how to handle it, how we learn and grow from it so that our testimonies of failure uh, become opportunities for others to learn and grow as well. Today, we're going to go out on a high by talking about testimonies of triumph. Everyone loves a winner, as the saying goes. And so as we get started, I want you to turn to a neighbor and just for a couple minutes, share your answer to this question. Who is someone you would consider to be a winner and why? Who is someone you would consider to be a winner and why? Okay, two minutes, go. All right. All right, let's bring it together. Any, uh, any winners? Shout, shout them out. <laughs> we in church today. All those who were blessed in the Beatitudes, other winners. Simone Biles. Simone Biles, yep. Won her fifth World Gymnastics Championship. Others? The Mystics. The Mystics won the, for their uh, WNBA title this last week. Kipchoge, the first human being to run a marathon in under two hours. That is a four-and-a-half-minute mile, people. Anyone else? All right, well, um, since we're talking about testimonies of triumph, sharing our stories of triumph, I uh, dug through some old photo albums. Um, This is me, age nine, uh, after I won a race at our swimming club meet. And then here's me... Here's me uh, after the Hong Kong Iron Kids Triathlon Championship at age eight. I ain't gonna lie, that's a finisher's medal, but, but finishing a kid's triathlon is a win in my book, especially as I haven't finished one since. Um, on the back of that photo, my mom wrote Jess's first triathlon, and I was like, my, I'm not dead yet, so I guess that's still true. But uh, Biles and Kipchoge, I'm not. 
But I, I guess the most, common, uh, the most common arena in which we use the language of winning is in sports. And, and, and as we've noted, DC has been doing pretty well. The Mystics just won the WNBA title. The, the Nationals won the first two games of the championship series. Um, the Capitals are just a season removed from hoisting the Stanley Cup. The Wizards have been in the playoffs for four of the last six seasons. And then um, there's the football team. that is vying to win the first overall pick in next year's draft. <laughs> For those who aren't familiar, that means that they are terrible. Yes. But, but winning is, is it's also familiar language to us here in DC because of the political realm, right? It's campaigns, elections, races, and so on. And so, so let me ask, what, what would you consider to be a victory or a win right now? You might think big picture, you might think, you know, for a particular political candidate to win or lose. Maybe it's a change in policy, maybe it's relief for refugees, maybe it's an end to war, maybe it's a particular Supreme Court ruling. Or maybe you're thinking more personally for, for you or for those around you. Completing a work project or hitting a, a target, getting a bonus. Maybe it's getting into a particular school or for your kid to get into a particular school. Maybe it's making it to a long-awaited vacation or keeping it real and just making it through the week. Uh, maybe it's a literal win for whatever sports team you support. What would be a win for you right now? Last week, I, uh, I tried to help us reframe failure to help us understand it better in order to fear it less. And this week, I want to reframe triumph. And in following the title and the theme of our series, The Whole Story, comes from the words in Psalm 40 where the psalmist says to the congregation, I told it all, I let the congregation know the whole story. I want to say that triumph, wins, successes, victories need to be told in the context of the whole story in order to not be misunderstood or celebrated cheaply. To be more specific, I want to propose that triumph needs to be seen through the lens of faithfulness in order to be rightly understood and rightly celebrated, or to boil it down even more, for us as Christians, our triumphs come from being faithful. Our triumphs come from being faithful. Taken on its own, a win is, is great, right? You know, nailed it, won it, passed it, made it, did it. And, and, and triumphs should be celebrated. If, if your kid wins something as I did many, many, many years ago, celebrate them, recognize them, encourage them. Whatever you count as wins or successes, they're worthy of applause and appreciation. Someone passed a tough test or became a parent or got married or stayed married or became a grandparent or got a, the job that they were looking for. Carolyn and I have been uh, celebrating the, the various developmental milestones that Daniel has been hitting in his first year of life so far, and it was sleeping or rolling over and most recently crawling, which by the way has shown us exactly how unchildproof our house really is. <laughs> but all of those wins, whatever they may be for you, whether momentous or not, they're special. They're all worthy of appreciation. But just like with failure, we can look at wins without reference to the whole story, without knowing what's gone before or what comes after. That's especially true in our day and age where we get, you know, we get snapshots of others' lives via social media. Uh, you know, a snap here, an Insta story there, a carefully chosen pic here, or a video highlight of their week there. And the majority of the time, it's the wins that get posted, right? Understandably. 
But looking at and scrolling through and swiping through wins without reference to the whole story can be dangerous because the thing is, if you think about it, whether something is a triumph depends on what you're looking at, when you ask, and whom you ask. First, whether something is a triumph depends on what you're looking at. In the Old Testament, the prophet Samuel was sent to look for a king in the house of Jesse, and he meets the oldest son, Eliab, who's tall and good-looking. He's like, this, this, this must be the king. And God's like, no, I don't look at things like humans do. Humans see what's only visible to the eyes, but I see into the heart. I know of churches and organizations that are lauded and celebrated for the work, the valuable, good work that they're doing, and, and people on the outside are just like, that's an amazing spot. And, and I know folks who work there, and they're like, it's, it's fine. Or it's not that great. Or it's fallen. With uh, the, the Me Too and the Church Too movements, we've seen how things will get swept under the rug for years. Under the veneer of, of, of success. We all know successful people who, who've fallen and we wondered what, would, what happened only to, to hear later about all the things that were going on under the surface or behind the scenes. Social media offers a varnished view of one another's lives and it's so easy to compare what we know of our own messy lives with what someone else is willing to share in public. Whether something is a triumph depends on what you're looking at whether it's the whole picture or just an angle, just a snippet. Whether something is a triumph also depends on when you ask. This, uh, this picture was, was taken in August 2018, just over a year ago. This is 15-year-old Greta Thunberg sitting outside the Swedish parliament at the very first climate strike. She is the only person there. By almost all measures, this strike would be considered a failure. But now, over a year later, with the hindsight of hundreds of marches all over the world led by millions and millions of young people, we laud her courage and her bravery and her vision and her commitment. On Holy Saturday, when Jesus was still in the tomb, when the disciples thought he was dead and gone, their movement was, by almost all measures, a failure. Jesus was just another addition to the long line of wannabe messiahs. But talk to those disciples a couple days later and they can't shut up about this resurrection thing, right? Whether something is a triumph depends on when you ask. Whether something is a triumph also depends on whom you ask. That is, what your standard of victory is or who defines what victory is for you. Say two football teams end the season with the same record of eight wins and eight losses, but one was the preseason favorite and the other was supposed to be starting from scratch and years from contention. One team might consider their season a triumph, right, a success. The other team would not. Or imagine coming home after, you know, a work gig with, with $50 when, when either you expected to make $100 or you didn't expect to make any money at all. Come home with the same amount of money but in one situation, you'd consider the day a win, and in the other, you'd come home feeling a little disappointed. It depends on how you measure your wins, measure how you measure your expectations. By standards of marketing and advertising, Jesus would probably have been considered a failure, right? He tended to run away from the crowds. 
He refused to parlay his popularity into power. All of his followers fled when he needed them the most. His one-time supporters chose to free someone else when they had a chance to free him. And he died a cruel, ignoble death. But fortunately, Jesus' life and death and resurrection, when understood rightly, when understood in the context of the light of the whole story, they're far from a failure. Indeed, Jesus lived the fullest, truest, most hopeful, most joyful, most loving, and I might even say most triumphant life anyone has ever lived, and so maybe we need to revisit our understanding of what a good life is, of what a successful life is. Maybe we need to shift whatever standards or expectations or measures of success or victory we hold right now, a, a particular level of income, a particular kind of job, a particular relational status, a particular kind of church, a particular achievement or attainment, probably whatever it is that's just out of reach that we're straining after. And I'm not saying those things aren't good and that we shouldn't pursue them at all, but maybe we need to hold them differently, understand them differently, look at them through a different lens, and that lens is the lens of faithfulness, the lens of faithfulness. Once Jesus told a story, a parable, about a master who entrusted his servants with the stewardship of his resources while he went away. Two of the servants went away and they invested those resources, they invested the money, and one buried the money to keep it safe. After a long while, the master returned and settled accounts with his servants, and the praise that the master gave to the servants who had invested wisely was, well done, you are good and faithful servant. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Mother Teresa was a Romanian nun in her mid-30s when she began serving among the poor in the slums of Calcutta, India. It was a ministry that would continue faithfully for almost 50 years. Mother Teresa became famous. She became known all over the world for the humble work she did, but this is what she said. God does not call us to be successful, but to be faithful. She was faithful to what God had called her to. Here's why I think faithfulness is the most helpful framework for understanding both triumph and failure. Because faithfulness it might actually look different for each of us. Not vastly different, but, but different enough in a way that's reflective of the fact that all of us are unique. All of us are in a variety of life situations. We, we, we are at different points along our respective journeys. We carry different baggage and we're blessed with different resources. Faithfulness takes into consideration the fact that you are who you are and I am who I am. God doesn't call you to be someone else. God doesn't call you to be me or me to be you. God calls you to be faithfully who God is calling you to be. Faithfulness is doing what you can, where you can, when you can, with what you have and what you know. To follow the calling of the Holy Spirit, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to seek the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven. And that looks a little bit different for each of us in our situations, circumstances, and contexts. Faithfulness makes room for the place of journey. It makes room for the, the place of progress, of evaluation over time. It isn't a one-time thing. It isn't making a single event into the whole, whether that is triumph or failure. Faithfulness says keep your eyes on the prize and keep going. This is how the Apostle Paul described faithfulness in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, whether in speech or action, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God the Father through Him. 
Or in Philippians 3, brothers and sisters, I don't myself, I don't think I've reached it. But I do this one thing. I forget all about the things behind me and I reach for the things that are ahead. And the goal I pursue is the prize of God's upward call in Christ Jesus. It's a journey. It's still going. And toward the end of his life, after being imprisoned multiple times and just before he was executed by the state, Paul said, quite simply, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Kept the faith. Faithfulness to God's call in Christ Jesus. That's important, too, knowing what we're called to be faithful to, right? Because what we're called, knowing what we're called to be faithful to determines whether we're being faithful or not, right? Knowing what the goal is, knowing what the target is, knowing what the standard is. If you're trying to run a marathon like Eliud Kipchoge, you measure faithfulness in the food you eat and, you know, how often you train and in sleep rhythms and in conditioning and so on. If you're training for a hot dog eating contest, you do other things. My friend Johan and I were talking yesterday about this picture of Greta Thunberg from, from August 2018, and he raised another question that I think gets to the heart of the matter, which is, what do you believe, what do you believe in that's worth doing regardless of the acclaim? What do you believe in that's worth doing regardless of the acclaim, regardless of what others might say? Greta Thunberg believes in scientists' support that if we don't do something to intervene on climate change, the world will be set on an irreversible course and the younger generations in particular will bear the fallout. That's a cause worth championing, even if you're the only one. Because she's not doing this to be popular. She's doing it because it needs to be done. So what do you believe in that's worth doing regardless of the acclaim? What is your life oriented around? What is your life committed to? What? Author Francis Chan will put it this way. Our greatest fear, our greatest fear should not be of failure but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. For me, it's, it's, it's Jesus and the good news of his kingdom that's worth pursuing, that's worth living out, that's worth chasing after, regardless of what a claim does or doesn't come. I believe in Jesus and his gospel because I think it's true and I think it's good. I believe that as I follow Jesus, that, that is, as I follow in the footsteps of Jesus to learn to live as Jesus would if, if he were in my place and that as I you know, seek first the kingdom of God that as I follow the lead of the spirit and working to see more of up there come down here as I do those things not only do I become a better person not only do I become who I was made to be but the world is changed for the better as well now of course I don't succeed every moment of every day I don't love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength every day, nor do I love my neighbors as I should every day, nor do I love myself as I should every day. And for that, there's confession and repentance and forgiveness and my sermon on failure from last week. But in stepping back to look at the whole story, my hope is that the trajectory of my life points to Christ 
that my target, that my goal, that my telos is Jesus, so I know when I'm swerving off course. I know when I'm veering off track. I know when I need to make a course correction. Now, I know that life can seem more complicated than that, especially, especially as we get older, as there are more things to juggle and weigh up, as competing demands or competing values seem to make choices more difficult than just a yes or no. There may be multiple options that are loving, or, or, or maybe none of the options seem loving enough, or every option requires giving something up of which we hold dear or cherish. I know our lives aren't cut and dry. I just want to make sure we remember that the whole story of your life finds its fulfillment inside the whole story of God, not outside of it. The whole story of your life finds its fulfillment inside the whole story of God. And you know, sometimes as we make those decisions, often between several good options, hopefully it's, it's a little easier to rule out the less good options. The question we should be asking isn't necessarily what's the right or wrong choice, what will lead to success or failure, but rather who am I or who are we becoming in the course of making this decision? Who am I or who are we becoming in the course of making this decision? How do I understand this decision in light of the decision I made last year or last month? How does this decision help us or hinder us in becoming who we want to be? Ten years ago, I was brand new to D.C., and I was desperately feeling the need for community. I had just graduated from seminary in California. I had left behind some of the most tight-knit friendships that I had ever experienced in my life. And moving to D.C., I was, I was doing intentional community with five other interns at Sojourners. We were sharing a house together. We shared a budget. We did chores together. We cooked together. It was, it was pretty full on. And I enjoyed it. But as an introvert, I was also trying to figure out where and how to get my introvert tank refilled. If you're an introvert, you know what I'm talking about. Where and how to get my space. And so you see the two competing Desires, right? Community and alone time. To be deeply known and to be on my own. <laughs> and with December approaching, I was invited by some new friends to spend Christmas with them and their family. Now, I hadn't met their family before. I only sort of knew them. And so I knew it would be awkward and it wouldn't be entirely restful. And it would require some extrovert energy and that I would have to be sort of on for the break. At the same time, I knew that all of the other interns were heading out of town for Christmas so the house would be empty, absolutely quiet, just me and my thoughts. So I had to make a choice. And in that, that moment, I knew, in that moment, I knew that my desire and my need to be connected was greater than my need to recharge, and that I wasn't going to be more deeply known by new friends by just being on my own for a week. And so I chose to spend Christmas with them. And it wasn't as awkward as I thought it would be. But I did have to be on for that week. Having that north star of, of where we're going and, 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 and what, our, what our target is, it doesn't mean that making decisions all of a sudden becomes easier. But as we mature and develop in our faith and our trust of God, we can make decisions, especially big ones, especially hard ones, in community with the communal, with the emotional and relational and prayer support of our friends, knowing that God is with us no matter what. 
But I also want to make all of this practical. I want to take the big picture of the whole story, which we need to keep in perspective, and I want to drill down to how we might do that in our everyday lives. Author and philosopher Dallas Willard says, the general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it reality. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it reality. And he points out that what we see Jesus do in the Gospels is, is actually just the highlight reel of his life. It's just the highlight reel of his life. That's what John says at the end of his Gospel. There are so many other things that Jesus did that if we wrote them down, there would not be enough books in the world to cover them. But the point Willard makes is that what Jesus did in such cases, in these cases that we hear about and read about in the Gospels, what Jesus did in those cases was in large measure the natural overflow of the life he lived when not on the spot. In other words, much of what we see of Jesus is the highlight reel. It's the selected moments of his life. The instances when he was in the spotlight. The problem is when we think the highlight reel is all there is. I mean, we all get it, right? Who wants to watch a 90-minute soccer match when you can see all of the action in 30 seconds? Some of us. Who wants to watch three hours of football when you can see the best plays in a few minutes? Again, a few of us. Non-sports fans are like, who wants to watch sports at all? But it doesn't just relate to sports. Okay? When we see someone post something on social media that makes us feel sad about our own lives because, oh, look where they got to go, or, or look what they got to eat, or look how good they look, how often do we step back and recognize that what we're seeing isn't, what we're being presented with isn't the whole story, right? It's rare for someone to post the entire 18, 23-hour plane journey that got them to Thailand, let alone the air sickness the cramped leg room, the recycled air, the sore back. It, that's not appealing, right? We want what is good, but we don't want to deal with what we have to do to get there. We want what is good, but we don't want to have to deal with what we, we got to do to get there. But, and again, it doesn't just relate to social media. What kind of church community do you want to be a part of? One that cares for the neighborhood, one that champions justice and the cause of the marginalized, one that presses into to tough questions because Jesus calls us to ask tough questions, one that pursues a multicultural, multi-class reality and not just a superficial visual diversity, one in which you feel fed and loved and known and poured into and welcomed for all that you are. Me too. So what kind of work does it take for us to get there? What we got to do to get there? What kind of individual contributions to the communal life would it take for us to be formed into that? I already offered you the invitation to, to serve, to volunteer, to give you your time and, and your energy and of yourself, but what kind of life are you, are we avoiding because if we aren't yet where we want to be, and we are always becoming, I'm not ready to label us either a success or a failure. I just want us to be faithful to the calling that God has for us in Christ Jesus. 
And for you, if, you know, if, if the season of life that you're in right now, you may not feel like you have the energy or the wherewithal to serve once a month, but let me tell you, let me encourage you, let me challenge you when I read Willard's words again. What is the next faithful step into community, toward community that the Spirit is stirring you toward? The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it reality. We seek out the big triumphs while disdaining the small everyday triumphs along the way, sometimes forgetting that faithfulness is committing to the small triumphs and the small failures that form us in preparation for the big triumphs. God is with us in the highlight reel and the crisis moment, but God is forming us and transforming us in the everyday rhythms and routines of our lives. This is true in every arena of life. Anyone who is worth emulating, anyone who has made it to the spotlight where we look at them and we want to be like them or we want our kids to be like them has committed to everyday faithfulness of making that life a reality. So whoever you are, activist, organizer, business owner, nurse, doctor, teacher, lawyer, student, retiree, whoever you are, know what you are committed to. Know what you believe in and know that getting there, if it's worth it, may not be easy. So what does faithfulness to the call of the kingdom, the call of Christ to the whisper of the Holy Spirit, what does that look like? This is what Paul wrote in Romans 12. Here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings, out the best, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. This week, as we close out the whole story series, there are two practices I want to give you. Everyday practices for faithfulness, everyday practices for refreshing our perspective on triumph and failure and faith and hope and community and origin. The, the, the first, quite simply and, and hopefully unsurprisingly, is to give and receive testimony. Is to give and receive testimony, to share your whole story, to share your triumphs and failures, to share how you got to where you got to, so that you might be reminded of how God was at work in your life so that you might be reminded of what you need to be grateful for, and so that those who hear your story might be presented with an unvarnished picture, one that acknowledges failure and success within the framework of faithfulness, one that recognizes that while you still have breath, the journey isn't over, the process isn't complete, the story isn't finished. If you're in a small group, you'll have times to share some of or parts of those stories, not just during this series, but every week. Part of doing, being in a small group is sharing our stories, sharing our lives together, and being, being, being known and being heard. But maybe an everyday practice for sharing is to journal for a few minutes every morning, 
to write down some of the ways you've seen God at work. Because future you might need to read that too. But lest we become known as self-centered and excessive talkers, let's not also forget that we have to receive testimony. That this series has been as much about seeking out other stories, holding others' experiences, listening to others, as it is about us sharing and speaking. And so, so listen to people. Listen to people every day at work, at home, at play, in a small group, at happy hour. Listen for the desires and the yearnings that lie beneath their words. Listen for how they got to where they are and for where they long to be. Listen for the ways God seems to be at work, even if they don't see it themselves or even if they don't believe in God. Ask good questions. And if you can't think of any, start with, tell me more. The second practice is a prayer called the Daily Examine. It was developed by Ignatius of Loyola, who was the founder of the Jesuit Order of the Catholic Church, one of my favorite saints. And it was, it was developed as a way of cultivating an everyday, every moment awareness of God, a reminder of the reality we inhabit. And as it sounds, it's a prayer of daily examination. It's what folks in recovery might call a fearless moral inventory. St. Ignatius envisioned this prayer being prayed twice a day at noon and at night. When I've done it, I usually just do it before bedtime. Uh, it has several steps that have been explained in different ways by different interpreters. Um, but the one I want to share with you all is, is by Father Mark Thibodeau. And um, so it's, it's, they all start with R. So it, again, like, like I did last week, it's a little bit shoehorned. But um, we'll, we'll walk through this together, actually. But I'll read through it. So step one is to relish the moments that went well and all of the gifts I have today. This is a step of gratitude, of thanksgiving. Step two is to request the Spirit to lead me through the review of your day so that the Spirit might reveal those places where we might be blind ourselves. Step three is to review the day, to look back on, on where God was at work and where we participated or where God was at work and we resisted or ignored it. Step four is to repent of mistakes or failures. And step five is to resolve in concrete ways to live tomorrow well, or t the rest of the day if you're not doing it at night. And so I want us to try this together. Um, I want to invite the band to come on up first. And um, we're going to try this prayer together. So I want to invite you to start by, by closing your eyes, getting comfortable in, in the seat that you're in. <coughs> And taking some deep breaths, breathing in and breathing out. And again, breathing in and out. First step of, of the examined prayer is to relish the moments that went well. You can think about this morning, you can think about this weekend. Relish the moments that went well and all of the gifts I have today. I begin by giving God thanks for all of the things I'm grateful for. I allow my mind to wander as I reflect on the ways God has blessed me on this particular day. I allow big things and small things to arise. Let's take a moment to do that.
Second, I request the Spirit to lead me through my review of the day. We're going to look at the moments in your day when, when we did not act so well. But before we do so, we ask God to fill us with His Spirit so that the Spirit can lead us through this difficult soul-searching. Otherwise, we are liable to hide in denial or wallow in self-pity or seethe in self-loathing. So we ask for the Spirit to lead us through. Third, we review the day, the weekend, the morning, whatever segment of time you want to lift up. We look back on that segment of time and we ask God to point out to us the moments when we have failed in big ways or small. We take a sobering look at the mistakes we've made. And then we repent of those mistakes or failures. If we have sinned, we ask God to forgive us and set us straight again. If we have not sinned but simply made a mistake, we ask for healing of any harm that might have been done. We ask for help to get over it and to move on. We ask for wisdom to discern how we might better handle such tricky moments in the future. And finally, we resolve in concrete ways, in concrete ways to live tomorrow well or today. We ask God to show us how today or tomorrow might go. We imagine the things we'll be doing, the people we'll see, the decisions we'll be mulling over. We ask for help with any moments we foresee that might be difficult. We especially ask for help in moments when we might be tempted to fall in the ways that we did today or this weekend. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. As we've been going through this series over these last six weeks, Lord, we, um, we may not have heard every topic, every sermon, every theme. We may not have had the opportunity to reflect on every aspect of our lives, on the whole story of our lives. But God, you are gracious and you are generous and you are good and you cover all that with your love. God, we want to bring all of who we are to you. We want to bring all of who we are. 
knowing that we are not yet who we will be, but we thank, we thank you that we are not who we once were. And so we ask for the ministry of your Holy Spirit, God, to remind us that you are with us, to remind us that our whole story finds its fulfillment within yours, that you got us, that you love us, that you're calling us to a great adventure. That the way may not be easy. That there may be work that needs to be done or obstacles that need to be hurdled, barriers that need to be climbed over, difficulties that need to be navigated, but that you You've won it. You've won it all through your son, through his death and his resurrection, and and we get to live in that victory. So we pray for whatever word we need to hear from you today, whatever reminder You need to speak into our story. We pray that we would hear that. We would take that. We would respond quickly to it. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.